So in case the font in the bulletin is too small for you to read like it is for me, uh, we're in Genesis 37, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 11. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zopah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you've gifted Robin in teaching. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would work through the words he says right now. Lord, we ask that we would have open hearts, open minds, and that your spirit would work in each of our hearts as well, that we would hear the lessons of today. And Lord, that we would take them and we would be transformed by your word and by the truths therein. Thank you now for this time of worshiping you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the things I love about preaching is the experience of going to a uh, a passage of scripture that you've read loads of times before and discovering something there that's new that you never, well, it's not new, that it was always there, but you never saw it before. And um, I had that experience as I was preparing for this message. Um, Mary had asked me what passage I was going to be preaching on because she wanted to coordinate it with the Sunday school. And that's been really wonderful to see the Sunday school tracking along with the, the, the rest of the congregation so that, you know, if you want to talk about stuff with your kids at home, they're, talk, they're talking about the same stories, the same passages. So I kind of hummed and hawed about that um, because, you know, the, 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 the Joseph story, what the scholars call the Joseph cycle, is just this wonderful narrative arc. And I, I, I really didn't want to just take a chunk out of the middle of it or something like that, although I've done that in the past. So um, I was reading through the story of Joseph, as I hope many of you have been doing this week, and I noticed something I'd actually never noticed before. Maybe you've all noticed it, but anyway, I'll mention it anyway. Um, 
Now, I knew that the dreams were important, but I hadn't noticed the way before that the dreams and the coats went together. Uh, so in, in chapter 37, Joseph has two dreams, and then he loses his coat. In chapter 39, he loses his coat, and immediately afterwards, he interprets two dreams. And then in chapter 41, he interprets two dreams, and Pharaoh gives him a new coat. So there's connections going on here. So that's the outline for this morning's message, uh, how Joseph's relationship with dreams and coats actually traces his development, the work of God in his life as he moves from being this arrogant youth to a humbled adult being able, able to be used by God to a man of influence who saves many lives. Now, when we first, when Merrill and I first prepared, uh, were preparing to go to Pakistan, our pastor sat us down and asked, and he asked me why I wanted to uh, serve as a worker. And he told me explicitly he didn't want all the theological and biblical answers. He wanted to know my personal reasons, my internal reasons. And I found myself saying that I had always dreamed of doing something worthwhile, something that would make a difference. Um, that goes all the way back to when I was a little kid, you know, playing Superman, being a superhero, all that kind of stuff, you know, building... Uh, for the Brits, building Thunderbirds out of Lego, uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, right? Um, you know, I was a bit of a dreamer, and um, and Joseph is also a dreamer, right? That's uh, an aspect of of him that we that we definitely know that he's somebody who relates well to dreams. Um, unfortunately, he was also his father's favorite. Uh, so if you've been reading along in the Essential 100 readings, uh, you'll know that Joseph grew up in what today we would call a generationally dysfunctional family. Okay? So Isaac and Rebekah, that's Joseph's grandparents, played favorites with Esau and Jacob. Uh, Rebecca seems to have grown up actually in a deceitful household because she was Laban's brother. Laban was her brother, right? And so she seems to have passed that on to Jacob. So in chapters uh, 28 through 31 of Genesis, you have kind of like a, an Olympics of deceitfulness as Jacob and his uncle Laban try to outdo each other in dirty tricks, right? Um, so Isaac had, had played favorites with his kids, and Jacob, in his turn, lives out the script that he had learned from his father. So he made Joseph his favorite, even though he was next to the youngest of his sons. And just as that fostered conflict between Jacob and Esau, phase of favoritism also fostered conflict between Joseph and the, and the rest of his brothers. So, as, as we heard, the badge of Jacob's favoritism was a beautiful coat that he gave to Joseph. And you can imagine him swagging around in his designer outfit, you know, feeling superior to his brothers, so superior that he actually talks down, talks his brothers down to his, to his father. He says he, bring, he, he brought a bad report to his father about them. Now, whether or not they were deserving of that, 
it, it, the scripture doesn't say. It just says that he brought, bought, brought a bad report and that caused even more um, uh, tension between him and his brothers. Then to make matters worse, he starts having these dreams. Right? And there's no question that he understands what they mean. The brothers certainly understand what, they're, what they mean. His father certainly understands what, he mean, what they mean. That, you know, he thinks his brothers are going to bow down to him. And just maybe he was suggesting to his brothers, maybe hinting that they should start practicing now. Right? Just maybe. Now remember, Joseph was 17 at this point. Not always the smartest age. But his, old, his older brothers would have been, you know, his oldest brothers would have been at least in their early 30s, early to mid-30s. It didn't go down too well. And um, so they decided to get rid of him. Now, in case you're wondering, how could they do that? I mean, weren't they brothers? Well, well yes and no, right? They were half-brothers. Children of the same father, but different mothers. Joseph's only full brother was Benjamin. All the rest were half-brothers. Now, polygamy has a number of negative aspects to it, one of which is the way it forms um, little sub-households with internal tensions in the family, right? Between different wives, different groups of half-siblings. Um, we have a... There was a, um, a, a colleague of ours in, in Afghanistan um, who, who was sadly killed, and uh, people from his old college did a, like a, a memorial video of it with you know, film, you know, old Super 8 video from their time in Afghanistan and stuff like that, interviews with the family as well. And um, so there was this little clip of two little girls playing. And then it cut to one of his daughters, who's now, now an adult. And she goes, oh, yeah, that was, that was Fatima, my next-door neighbor. We used to play first wife, second wife together. She grew up, they, they grew up in Afghanistan. She grew up in Afghanistan. This is a game that Afghan girls play, is first wife, second wife. I was first wife. You, know, you were first wife last week. My turn to be first wife. <laughs> so there's these dynamics within polygam polygamous households. And the Old Testament is full of stories that point out that kind of mixed loyalty in the, um, in the family. And don't think that's something that's confined to Old Testament um, or culture, the Old Testament or cultures where polygamy is legal. Same dynamic can play out in blended families. You know, where the husband and the wife both bring children from a previous marriage and then they have children together. I've seen those kind of dynamics play out in my own extended family the um, tensions, things like that. So one day, um, Jacob sent Joseph to check up on his brothers, and they saw their chance to get rid of them. Chapter 37, verse 19 says, Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say the ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So Reuben, of course, is taking his role as the firstborn here, being the responsible member of the family, and seeking to save Joseph's life. But while he was off doing something else, the Bible doesn't tell us what he was doing or where he was, but apparently when he was somewhere else, the rest of the brothers sold Joseph to some passing slave traders and covered their tracks by ripping up his robe, putting goat's blood on it, and taking it to their father with the story that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. Jacob was heartbroken. Meanwhile, Joseph, the arrogant, entitled youth, is taken down to Egypt and resold as a slave to Potiphar, the captain of the guard of the palace of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Not only had he lost his coat, it looked like he'd lost his dreams too. It says in chapter 39, verse 2, that in Egypt, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. For the first time in his life, he has to fend for himself. He's no longer under the protection of his father. He has to fend for himself. He has to hold down a job, make a living. And God blesses him in that. God blesses him and enables him to do well. In fact, he does such a good job that in a few years, Potiphar has handed the entire running of his household over to Joseph. Now, some parts of the Old Testament read like a bit like daytime television. Um, and Genesis 30, chapter 39 is one of those parts. So Joseph spends all day working around the house. And verse 6 says, Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. So Joseph is a young man in his 20s at this point, And it looks like he inherited his mother Rachel's good looks. So when his father... Jacob was the same age. He was busy deceiving everybody in sight. Right? Remember that? You know, he was, this, this is what he did. Jacob was a deceiver. But Joseph has turned out differently. So I, I don't like to think about how Jacob would have responded to this kind of situation. But Joseph turns out to be a young man with integrity who doesn't take advantage of the situation. He explicitly says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It's the first time God's mentioned in the story, except for the narrator saying that the Lord was with Joseph. Nobody in the, nobody in the story has actually mentioned God at this point. Something's changed. He's no longer this arrogant, entitled youth. God has a place in his life that he didn't seem to have before. What was different? Quite possibly, he had a crisis of faith at the bottom of that cistern. 
I mean, that, that, you, know, hard, you know, those kinds of situations can make you ask hard questions. But I think part of it was also simply he wasn't at home anymore. Remember, you know, Joseph's father, Jacob, had changed. He'd eventually changed. God had, he'd wrestled with God, and God had changed, uh, changed him and changed his name as well to Israel. But he had a whole family of kids who had been raised in a household where lying and deceit were the norm. And you can see that in the way that his sons deceived Jacob about Joseph. But Joseph turned out differently. We don't have to repeat the mistakes of our parents. You know, it is possible to break out of those family scripts that we learn in childhood. Part of that is being aware that we've learned the family script in childhood, right? And Joseph seems to have broken the mold in terms of the, the way in which his, his family had generationally behaved. Anyway, verse 11 says, One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. There he goes, losing his coat again. This time in a good cause. <laughs> okay. So Joseph is a, is a man of integrity, and he refuses to sin against God and his master. However, as someone once wrote, heaven has no rage like love turned to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. And so Potiphar's wife frames him for sexual harassment, the very thing that she was doing to him, right? And gets him thrown in prison. As if being sold as a slave isn't enough, he ends up in prison. Chapter 39, verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. There's that theme again from when he was first in Potiphar's uh, household. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did isn't clear whether Joseph was convicted or where he was remanded in custody and just forgotten. But while he had lost his freedom, prison became a training ground for him as he was given responsibility for the internal operations of the prison. He had been in charge of a household. Now he's in charge of an entire institution. He had been sold as a slave and quickly became the administrator of his master's entire household. He was framed and sent to prison and quickly became the internal administrator of the prison. I'm so glad for the themes in this, this worship songs this morning, which are about, which were so much of it was about, you know, stuff looks really bad, and yet in the midst of it, God is at work. Again, again, we sang about that this morning. And this is the, this is the, the underlying theme of the whole Joseph cycle, is that. Although things may look bad, God is always at work. And once Joseph was away from his toxic family environment, God was able to shape him into a man of integrity and a gifted administrator. But he had another gift too. Dreams are important in the Bible. 
And they're still important in most places around the world, including this area of the world. Not in the way they are in the West. In the West, um, because we, people in the West often live as if there isn't a spiritual world, many people have come to see dreams as only a reflection of their inner processes, right? We don't think of dreams so much as a message from God as a message from ourselves, which for some people may actually amount to the same thing. <laughs> when two of Joseph's cellmates have similar dreams, they take, they take them very seriously. And they're also really upset because, as it says in chapter 40, verse 8, we both had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. So dream interpretations, interpretations were usually carried out by experts. They had dream books, which contained sample dreams along with the key to the interpretation. So since dreams often depended on symbolism, for an interpretation, you needed two things. You needed the interpreter, and you needed his reference manuals. Joseph's point of view was a bit different. It didn't matter to him that there weren't any professional or scientific um, dream books in the jail. He um, says, then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clustered ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. And then the baker does the same thing. He said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph... So, so, so Joseph interprets their dreams for them, and, their, and the interpretations come true. The cup barrier was restored to his position, and the baker was executed. Now, the, the cup bearer promised to mention Joseph to Pharaoh when he saw him, but of course he forgot. So he sp Joseph spent another two years in jail until Pharaoh had a dream. In fact, he had two dreams. In, in, this, in, in, this, in the Joseph story, dreams always come in pairs. Have you noticed that? In fact, he had two dreams. His dreams were about skinny cows eating fat ones and thin heads of grain eating good ones. So as, as Pharaoh's worrying about his dreams, the cupbearer go, cup goes, hang on a minute, there was this guy I knew in prison. Um, and so Joseph finally comes before Pharaoh and interprets his dreams. There will be seven years of bumper harvest followed by seven years of famine. Joseph also gives Pharaoh some advice about how to respond. Chapter 41, verse 33. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt, so the country will not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, the one, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. 
So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a chain around his neck. And the story that begins with Jacob dressing Joseph in a fine robe because of self-centered favoritism ends with Pharaoh dressing him in a fine robe because of the gifts that God has given Joseph, the gift of wisdom and the gift of administration. Pharaoh recognizes Joseph's wisdom and puts him in charge of running the response to the famine. He's probably in his early 30s at this point. It had taken his dad 40 years to get to the point of just turning his life over to God. You get the impression that Joseph's crisis of faith might have taken place in his late teens when his brothers sold him into slavery and stuck him in a well and all that kind of stuff. Now, a lot happens in the next 10 chapters that I'm not going to talk about, um, including a family reunion. But Joseph has the last word on the meaning of the story, and it's the passage that Mark read at the beginning. So in chapter 50, after his father Jacob has died, Joseph's brothers are afraid, afraid he might finally now take revenge on them. Joseph's response is striking. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended, intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God can take any story, including yours, and turn it around for good. It doesn't matter what your family did to you. Joseph real, knew real, real rejection from his brothers. It doesn't matter what kind of abuse you've experienced. Joseph was sold. Today we would say Joseph was trafficked by his own brothers into slavery. It doesn't matter what kind of injustice you've suffered, being thrown into jail because you did the right thing. God can still take your story. God can still take your life and turn it around for good. A few other things from Joseph's story. God is in the business of saving lives, and you can join him in that. I started off talking about dreams of being a hero, of making a difference. Those aren't bad dreams to have. Those are good dreams to have. God is still in the business of saving people, whole people, not just souls. He used Joseph to keep not only his own family alive, but huge numbers of people in the ancient Middle East. One of my favorite movies is Amazing Grace, a story of William Wilberforce, the man that God used to bring about the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. God is in the business of saving lives. We may not be called to something on that scale, but we are called to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. I just want to commend this congregation and the commitment that 
you have had to supporting the Ukrainian orphans here in Antalya. And I want to encourage you to continue in that because God is in the business of saving lives. God is in the business of making people's lives better. You can also speak for God in your own context. In the prison, Joseph was able to bring God's presence into the lives of his fellow prisoners. Although the cupbearer got better news, you could argue that the baker got more important news, right? He heard he was going to die the next day, and he had some time to come to terms with it before it happened. So we can be the window that lets God speak into the lives of those around us. In the workplace, the classroom, the coffee shop, even the prison cell. It doesn't have to be anything earth-shattering. Just a word of blessing, an offer to pray. Just offering a different perspective on what's happening around you. Any of those can be a word of life into someone's situation. And as we said last week about Abram, God has gifted you to serve others. Like Joseph, we can serve faithfully with whatever, whatever skills or gifts God has given us. He was an administrator. Maybe you're an administrator. You might be a teacher or a nanny or an engineer or a web designer, all kinds of other things that, you know, Gifts, abilities, skills that God has given you. Whatever you are, use your abilities to serve others. And God will be with you as he was with Joseph. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you. Thank you that there is no situation so dark that you cannot reach into it and bring light out of it. Lord, thank you for the story of Joseph, that despite all the negative things that happened to him, yet you were in the midst of it, preparing him for a role that would save millions of lives. Lord, I don't have to be a prophet to know that there are, each one of us in this room has experienced hurt and disappointment and adversity. That's just part of being human. But Lord, as we bring those things to you, I know that you can turn them around and use them for good. So I pray that, Lord, for each one of us, that the the negative things that have happened in our lives would not be what controls us. But Lord, we would take those things and bring them to your feet that you might use them to make us more like you, more able to, to bless others, more able to serve others, more able to speak a word of life into the lives of others. And Lord, along those lines, we pray for those who in these days are suffering because of the cold weather, whether they've had to flee their homes, as in Ukraine, 
whether it's just because the the country is in such dire straits as in Afghanistan. Lord, so many places around us are in conflict and people are hurting because of it. So Lord, we ask that your people in these places would be your hands and feet to help those around them. We pray for our home countries as well, Lord, particularly those from North America where Canada and the U.S. are experiencing really cold weather. Lord, that you would um, enable people to be safe and um, protected from the cold. On the other hand, Lord, we thank you for snow here in Turkey. And um, the I know there was a, people were concerned about the lack of precipitation and um, worrying about drought. So we thank you for the snow that's fallen around the country, despite the inconvenience and difficulty that might cause for some people. We are thankful for that, Lord. Lord, we pray for the uh, the world scene and the tensions between superpowers, between the U.S. and Russia and China, um, that's been in, the, in the, the news this week. Lord, pray that uh, there wouldn't be an escalation. Lord, we we do pray for nations at war. We pray for Ukraine, particularly, for and for and for Russia. Lord, for a, a peaceful solution with justice in that conflict. And we pray for the cycle, you know, the cycle of violence currently going on in Israel um, in the occupied territories, Lord, that you would bring an end to that without any more bloodshed and be some kind of fruitful dialogue going on. And in our own community, Lord, we pray for those facing challenges with their ikamet, um, whether it's um, uncertainty or whether it's the, the, the knowledge that they have to leave, Lord. We pray for those who are in that position. And Lord, like Joseph, pray that they would know that you are in this and you're in the midst of this and you will lead them into places of, of, of service. And finally, Lord, we pray for those facing health issues, particularly, Lord, pray for Joyce as she is, um, her back issues are in, improving, but she's not sure what happens next. Uh, she's in the U.S. And pray for Brian's father and with uh, his, uh, his leukemia has taken a bad turn and he's, Brian's traveling to, to see his father. Lord, I pray for these loved ones, part of our family, Lord, that you be with them in the midst of this. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together in whatever language you're comfortable in. Our Father, who art... Amen. Invite the worship team to come up. <clears throat>